I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. I'm Matthew Petty, and this is Florida Matters. Partisan politics have shaken up nonpartisan races like school board elections. Sarasota School Board is now a lot more conservative with the election of three candidates backed by Governor DeSantis, and it's not the only race where his influence was felt. We'll explore how politics is taking centre stage on the school boards and what that means for teachers and students. Joining us for that conversation are education reporters Kerry Sheridan and Stephen Walker. First, though, I talked with Tina Deskovich. She's a former Brevard County School Board member and co-founder of the conservative Moms for Liberty group. Members of the group have opposed mask mandates during the pandemic. They've called for more scrutiny of what's been taught in classrooms and they've called for the removal of books they deem offensive from school libraries. Deskovich says the success of the group's candidates in the recent elections is a blueprint for the future. Tina Deskovich, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So a majority of the school board candidates who were backed by Governor DeSantis, including Moms for Liberty candidates, won their elections. I wonder how much you think the governor's input helped in those races? I think it helped tremendously. You know, historically, school board races, the turnout across Florida and across the country really is dismal at best. And so... You know, one of the reasons we formed Moms for Liberty was to get more eyes on what school boards were doing and on school board elections, because both Tiffany and I, who co-founded Moms for Liberty, served on school boards. I ran twice, uh, one once, lost my re-election. Tiffany ran once, but, uh, what we, you know, it's really hard to get people to turn out to vote for school board, especially when it's during the primary. A lot of voters don't understand that the decisions are made that day for a lot of elections. And so... Mm-hmm. Having someone like Governor DeSantis with his reach and his voice and his popularity uh, drawing attention to the races, I think, really helped. Is this a one-off or do you think there's going to be more interest in school board elections going forward? Oh, there's absolutely going to be more interest in school board elections going forward. Uh, You know, this isn't our first state where chapters have been endorsing in New York. Our chapters endorsed around 70 seats and and took 40 in Texas, I think uh, maybe 20 seats or so. So um, not as well organized yet in those states. We really tried to to set a blueprint here in Florida how we really want to do this and now duplicate it around the country. So there's great interest. Uh, As you might know, we have 230 chapters in 40 states. And so our chapters all around the country really want to focus on school board elections and we plan on helping them do that. How much autonomy do those different chapters have? Are they is it kind of like franchisees or, or is there centralized control of what goes on? How does it work? Yeah, it's a great question uh, because our numbers, I think we endorsed in 65 races or supported, I'm going to say in 65 races in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, our chapters endorsed some of those, and then uh, the PAC at the state level picked a few extra candidates. But uh, the chapters get to endorse who they want to endorse, and these moms seriously have no political experience whatsoever. So they are picking candidates that align with them ideologically without a whole lot of strategic planning behind it. And so, you know, Florida really was a trial for us to see how they would do Um not knowing that, you know, not understanding the numbers and and what type of voters they're looking at. They just, they interview the candidates. They use a a screening tool for them. We ask them to hold forums. 
uh, a lot of them did that with all the candidates in their district and then vote as a chapter on which candidate you want to see win. And, you know, we ended up um, when they're taking 43 seats, either um, on Tuesday night or they advanced, I think 14 of those 43 advanced to the general uh, using that method. And so, you know, I think our moms are, are doing a pretty good job. A lot of the school board meetings at districts across the state over the last few years have been quite contentious, especially about things like mask wearing, the use of pronouns, what books can be allowed in classrooms. Now there are more of your candidates on school boards. Do you think the tone of those meetings will change? I think parents are still upset and frustrated. I think it will help that they know someone on the board hears them, is listening, and is understanding. I think you know, what's really been surprising, I served on school board, as you know, and I, I sat on the dais even as school board chair under some very contentious meetings after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, hundreds of protesters in our meetings. Uh, we went to impasse one year with the union. So you imagine hundreds of protesters there. Uh, what people want is they want to be heard. And when when we sat on the school board with my four others, we listened and, you know, people were upset, but you were able to come to agreements. And, and at least if you listen and hear, but what's happened these last two years is school boards across the country have been shutting down microphones, uh, taking time from three minutes to one minute, shutting down the meetings and doing them Zoom, literally throwing them out of meetings. And that just escalates, escalates, escalates. So hopefully now that they feel like they've got someone listening, uh, someone fighting for them on the board, uh, you know, tensions will be de-escalated. But in some of those meetings, the, the school board does actually have to get some business done, right? And and on the notion of, uh, you know, time limits, like if there's a lot of parents who want to speak, then you have to have some kind of time limit. So are there some rules and boundaries about, you know, who can talk and when that should be in place? You know, no. No, not at all, in my opinion, because when I served on the school board, we sat there sometimes till midnight listening to people. I think everyone needs to be heard. And as an elected official, that's what I stood by. That's what my board did. And and we were Democrat, Republican, independent on my board, mm -hmm. but we made public input a priority. We did rearrange it so that if you were speaking to an agenda item, you got to speak at the beginning of the meeting. But we sat there and stayed and listened until the bitter end. And I think if school boards around the country were more willing to do that on day one with COVID, I think a lot of these hostile school board meetings wouldn't have happened. So, so no time limits on on public speaking. Well, time limits, but you don't you don't change it because more people show up. We had three minutes for you know as long as I can remember at my school district, mm -hmm. and we didn't change that when a hundred people showed up. It was still three minutes. We did ask if you're going to say the same thing. Maybe you want to combine with someone. Maybe let someone else say it. But they don't want to do that. People want to be heard. They're they're home. They're frustrated. They're irritated. They take their time from their families and their jobs to show up. And mm -hmm. I, the least public officials can do is give them three minutes. Does Mums Philibity support book bans? We do not support book bans. That is a false information that I think is spread about us a lot. We do want to vet books and make sure they're age appropriate for our children. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't argue against books being printed, books being sold, books being in your local public library. Uh, put anything in there you want, but uh, K twelve school libraries by tax dollars that our children are exposed to. We definitely want to have input. I like to revert back to Brevard County where I served. Um, when we had a book that came forward that a parent was upset about, you know, we worked hard to put a policy in place where the book was reviewed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it, it happened to be in a library where a middle school and a high school shared uh, a library. And the book was on an AP reading list and yet middle school students had access to it. So we ended up making a section in the library uh, for AP books that either only AP students had access to or par parents could opt their child in to have access to those. You know, we're looking for reasonable solutions to some of these issues and concerns that parents have. 
Do you think, though, that, I mean, aren't those books already being vetted by, say, librarians and other kind of media resource specialists? Clearly, they're not. I mean, I can point to places all around the country, All Boys Aren't Blue, which is very, very graphic. Uh, uh, a graphic sex happening in that book was found in an elementary school in Montgomery County, Maryland, by one of our moms here in my county. Genderqueer was in one of those joint libraries on display, which means seventh graders had access to it. I think it's completely unacceptable. Uh, so clearly, the system is broken. And what we've learned is some of these libraries don't have any processes for betting books. And mm-hmm. some librarians, they they purchase books um, from lists that they have felt confident in for years. Um, you know, certain organizations will put out a list and for 20 years they've bought from that list and they have been fine. And now they're realizing some of those books aren't so great. I think, you know, parents need to be plugged in, checked in, and they need to have a voice about what their children have access to. But if one group of parents is able to get a school district to say, remove certain books from the library, does that infringe the rights of parents who would like their kids to have access to those books in the school library? No, not at all. First of all, you know, if the book is violating state statute and it varies from state to state, it needs to be removed. It's violating the law. Um, in a lot of cases, we have found books that are violating the law. If the book isn't violating the law and we just want a parental opt out or a parental opt in option, I don't think that violates another parent's or child's rights at all. It just gives more flexibility for parents that have different belief systems and difference of opinions. One teacher told WSF that she was covering up her bookcase with police tape so students know that it's off limits. And we heard another teacher say that they'd covered the bookcase up with paper. And then there's stories of book fairs in multiple counties like Sarasota and Seminole County, for example, being put on hold. Is that kind of what was expected from the the law change, you know, the parental rights and education law change? No, I, you know, there's nothing in the bill that says anything about that. I think um, people are making decisions on fear. I've watched union leaders put out statements that are false and untrue. I think there is some confusion in gray areas, and I think we could use more direction probably from the DOE on this for teachers to hear. But I've talked to teachers myself that have been asked questions that they thought something was in the bill and I've pulled out the bill. It's not that long and read it to them and showed them. And like, there's nothing in here about that. Uh, I think people are, you know, making decisions based on fear and it's unfortunate because it's hurting the children. Right. But do you think some of those fears are reasonable if teachers are worried that they'll get in trouble for teaching a certain book or even just having a book on, on the library shelf, for example? You know, I don't I, I prefer not to make any decisions in life based on fear, especially when it comes to children like that. Uh, you know, if there's if there's nothing in those books that's inappropriate, uh, they have nothing to fear. Uh, it's it, they're unfounded. And I think people are, are scaring them into extremes. And it's unfortunate. But then does it come back to who's making the decisions about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate? I think if I'm correct, the bill uh, places that at the feet of the principal. And so teachers need to consult their leadership in their school and ask for direction from their school, um, from their school district leaders. What about curriculum transparency? Um, I know that's been a a rallying cry for a lot of uh, parents and, you know, Moms for Liberty, et cetera. If schools already have curriculum transparency in in Florida, what's next? Like what, what do you need next? What more can you ask for? Yeah, you know, we're a national organization and some states don't have good curriculum transparency at all. Florida does a very good job. And I will um, be honest and tell you that parents have been very, um, I hate to use the word neglectful, but they have just abdicated their responsibility when it came to curriculum and where they should have been involved. When I served, you know, the the board would have 30 day open periods where parents could come and review. We'd have a night with everything set out for people to show up. I would scream it from the rooftops. I would put it out in emails all over my social media and no one would show up. 
and it's unacceptable. Um, I love that Moms for Liberty is shining lights on some of the concerns in um, in the curriculum so that now parents, they, they've got eyes on. And so by having a curriculum transparency bill, uh, hopefully it'll draw more parents in to know, you know, you absolutely have not only the right, but the, the school districts in Florida roll out the red carpet a lot of times for you to come in, at least ours did, and see what's going on. There are concerns, I will be honest, every time a parent brought me some crazy lesson, uh, you know, on all sides of the aisle, something just bizarre and off the wall that was politically charged when I was serving, I would take it to the district staff and they would say, this isn't really an approved assignment. And we would dig and do some research and they'd always find out it came from teachers pay teachers. And I know it's a website uh, that a lot of teachers get assignments from. Uh, teachers can pull curriculum and they need to have autonomy to teach lessons, to do a good job, at, you know, to customize to their children. But there is this area where they can pull lessons uh, that are totally inappropriate at times that haven't been reviewed. And so, you know, I don't have the answers to that, that problem today right now, but it's something we definitely need to, to look at. And it, it also means that parents have to open those backpacks and look at those lessons. The reason parents were able to bring me some of those lessons and we were able to put the stop on some of them is because parents were awake and watching what was coming home. And you don't think they were awake and watching before that? No, I just told you we would have we'd have whole months, whole nights at our district and no one would show up. Uh, you know, even myself years ago when my kids were small and I live in an A district, my kids go to A schools, they brought home A's like everything's great. I, you know, I'd go make cupcakes. I'd, sh I'd show up at the PTA meetings. I would volunteer in the classroom, but I didn't really pay attention to what was going on. I had no idea who was on my school board, no idea how curriculum was chosen, had no idea even where the district's offices were. And what we're finding in our work is that most parents in America are in that same situation. Most people don't know who their school board members are. And so it's very important that they, you know, take their civic responsibility uh, and, and do the right thing. And it's your children and their education and pay attention and be involved. That's Tina Deskovich, co-founder of Moms for Liberty, a conservative parents group that's focused its recent efforts on school board elections. You can listen to more of that interview on our website, wusfnews.org. You're listening to Florida Matters. Still to come, we'll talk to education reporters Kerry Sheridan and Stephen Walker about the politicization of school board elections and what that means for the classroom. Welcome back to Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about the politicization of school boards and the election of candidates backed by the conservative Moms for Liberty group. School board elections are non-partisan, but Governor Ron DeSantis weighed in on school board races, and in Sarasota the board now looks a lot more conservative. For more, we're joined by education reporters Kerry Sheridan and Stephen Walker. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kerry, thanks again. Glad to be here. Well, Kerry, let me start with you. You've covered contentious issues over the last couple of years, like disputes over mask wearing during the pandemic, for example. What are you going to be watching for at school board meetings going forward? Now there's a pretty profound shift in who's on that board. Yeah, it'll be interesting in Sarasota. Now we have, uh, as of mid-November, we'll have four conservative members on the school board and one liberal. And um until now, it's been a 3-2 uh, liberal, you know, Democratic um, majority. So it'll be really interesting to see how that four-person majority proceeds with the business of 
you know, managing the school district. I think that's what we're all interested in seeing. How will they change things? I'm not sure that I've heard much in terms of exactly how that will play out, um, but it'll be uh, something that a lot of people are looking at. You've covered the education beat for some time. Is it unusual to see the level of partisanship that we did in school board elections? I think that it's increasing over time, for sure. I think that people have been aware of the parties involved in um, who's on the school board for a long time. But the way that it's been set up officially is that it's a nonpartisan board, that people who are on it are intending to create the best education system for all students. So with the increasing levels of partisanship, especially when you had Governor Ron DeSantis come in and endorse um, close to 30 uh, candidates for school board, and the majority of them won, it really adds a different level of tenseness, I think, is one way to put it, to to the whole situation of a school board meeting. Um, people are very hyper aware of the politics involved. And I think that that, from what I'm hearing from sources, it's sort of deterring from the mission of public education and making sure that kids are getting the best education they can. Well, Stephen, uh Based on what you saw during that very busy few weeks leading up to the election, and even before that, I mean, the campaigning got started quite early this year, I think. Did the result come as a surprise, that sort of 4-1 tilt to the conservative side with the school board? Um, Yes and no. So if you look at campaign finances, which historically have been a generally good indicator of, you know, how much money's coming in, and it'll generally be like how how much support people have. Every single conservative candidate that won on Tuesday lost their campaign finance battle, some to a extreme extent. Um, the The most funded candidate, Lauren Kernoff, had, I think, almost $270,000 in campaign finances, which was the most of anybody on the ballot, and outraised her opponent by upwards of $150,000, and she still lost. So if you're looking at that from that perspective, campaign finances, it was a surprise. But if you're talking about the people who actually come to these school board meetings every single meeting and the ones that are out there, they they had a really strong grassroots campaign. The, they called it the ZEM for Ziegler, Enos, and Marinelli, the ZEM, ZEM movement. Um, they were everywhere. You couldn't really drive anywhere without seeing their signs. They were very, very active on Facebook. And, you know, for a a primary election without a governor primary where you would kind of expect Democrats to dominate the uh, the turnout. They really didn't compared to, I mean, you look at how many Republicans showed out, specifically in Sarasota. Kerry, you covered the Moms for Liberty conference not too long ago, and the governor was a very high profile keynote speaker there, which is perhaps a little bit unusual in school board elections for a, a governor to be front and center sort of speaking on these issues. So I wonder if that had some impact in, in driving up turnout for these races? Oh, I definitely think it did. I think that a lot of that conference was um, focusing on how parents, moms in particular, could be warriors in this new movement. That was a word that they used a lot, was calling themselves joyful warriors and that they're in the fight of their lives and things like that. So having the support of the governor for initiatives that they see as uh, very important to them um, certainly drove a lot of turnout, I think. Stephen, let me just read a quote from one of those candidates who won her election, Bridget Ziegler. She wrote on Twitter after her victory, 
quote, the community has spoken and it is crystal clear they are demanding a reset of the school board and that's what they're going to get. I wonder what you think a reset might mean um, and also what kind of indication there could be about that given that um, Bridget Ziegler has been a, a school board member and, and sort of won re-election in, in effect. So was, uh, Bridget Ziegler was the incumbent, so she re-won her seat. Um, the two seats that were flipped were of two people who are retiring from the school board, and that would be uh, Jane Goodwin and Shirley Brown. Uh, those two people on the board have historically voted more liberal than who will be replacing them. So you, you talk about this four to one makeup. They will have a lot of power to change policy as they see fit. And so when you talk about like a reset, I think, I mean, they're, they are celebrating, you know, flipping the board and they've talked about changing a number of things. These parents felt like their voices weren't being heard specifically by Jane Goodwin, who was the chair of the board and Shirley Brown. These are two people that have almost been vilified by one side. And back in April, um, a woman was removed from a, a school board meeting for refusing to step off the lectern for public comment. You know, the next week, parents showed up with signs, you know, resign Jane Goodwin, like Jane Goodwin doesn't want to hear you speak. So, you know, these two people on the board were very, they were targeted by this group. And it was a very big reason why they turned out to flip those seats. You also wrote, Stephen, about the connection between the Proud Boys and some of the campaigns for those three conservative candidates who won their elections for school board. Uh, what have the school board members said publicly about those connections, if there if there are those connections? During the campaign, uh, this was back in June, uh, one of the candidates, Robin Marinelli, was scheduled to do a meet and greet event with constituents and people in the community, and it was hosted at a restaurant that was owned by uh, a proud boy, somebody who was at the Capitol on January 6th. And it's something where when asked about it, she said, I have no idea who this person is. Like, I, I didn't organize this. You know, this was part of the larger campaign people, like, putting things together. And these people are just out in the community. So she chalked it up to a coincidence. And then she pulled out of the event ultimately because she didn't want to be associated with that. And then uh, I believe Ms. Ziegler is quoted in my story, you know, saying, you know, these are just people in the community and, you know, we don't you know, condone, but it's, you know, they're there. And if you look at one of the photos from the election night, specifically the one after they won, there's a whole group of people and you can spot two people who appear to be affiliated with the Proud Boys, one of which is, uh, his name is James Howell. He is the person who was listed as in Miss Marinelli's campaign event. Um, so he's the one that was directly connected there. And then the other is the husband of Melissa Radovich, who is a regular at school board meetings and so you, you have these people showing up in pictures and there's connections, but candidates will tend to distance themselves when asked specifically about it, just because of how inflammatory that can be. Kerry, um, some of the things that Moms for Liberty in particular have been calling for include curriculum transparency, but in many ways, curriculum transparency already exists. So I wonder where you see them going from here now that the candidates they back to have a majority on the school board in Sarasota? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it is law that curriculum has to be transparent in Florida. So when the moms that I met at Moms for Liberty would talk about that, 
I would mention to them that it is already the law that, you know, they would demand to see what their children were learning. They needed to see that. They felt it was very important to be able to vet what was being taught. Um, it seemed to me to emerge that what they would like to see is what it is before it's being taught, um, and they want more details about it because they're they're reading and hearing things that suggest to them that there's nefarious intent going on, that, you know, we've all read the social media things about um, teachers are grooming children or that there's an ideology of wokeness in schools that they're against. Um, sitting in on some of the sessions, they were against things like restorative justice because they feel that it lets bad behavior continue in schools. Um, and and to be fair, I've learned in my reporting that even though the curriculum in Florida is transparent, it is kind of hard to figure out exactly where things are and um, you know what's going to be taught. I've learned that from, through some of my teacher sources, how to track that down, actually. But for the average parent, it, it could be pretty difficult. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I, I've been watching some of the school board meetings uh, remotely, and I see Moms for Liberty questioning things like offensive material in books. Um, I see them talk uh, question a lot about the budget and why certain decisions are made to pay certain you know entities things for schools um, for different school programs and things and also the social emotional learning seems to be something that they're really looking at and seeing it as a bad thing whereas um, other sources that i've interviewed in education have this is based on research that children need to have a safe environment to be accepted in order to learn so it's actually not a negative thing but it's being taken that way by a certain group of people Kerry, you've also talked with an education policy expert on what happens when school boards become politicized. I wonder, just to wrap up here, what impact do you think this could have on what happens in the classroom long term? Yeah, I think it's important to mention that despite a lot of allegations of indoctrination and grooming and things, we don't have evidence of this happening in public schools on any kind of a wide scale. Or This is not something that you've been reporting on any of this. I mean, in terms of actual evidence? Yeah, it's mostly just uh, from my ex like experience in reporting into this, it's a lot of, I guess, the feeling around it like and the rhetoric around what's going on in schools. I, I just think that's an important point to make that, you know, it's not it's almost that teachers have to defend themselves against something that's not actually happening. When I interviewed a, a younger history teacher um, at Sarasota High, he talked about the curriculum changes that are happening for the next school year in 2023, where um, a course about uh, Supreme Court cases now no longer has Roe versus Wade in it, and it no longer has Texas v. Johnson, which was uh, the case that established that flag burning is a protected form of free speech. And you know, his point was that is actually indoctrination when you only teach a certain form of history so that kids come out not understanding the full scope of what happens, then you, you are altering the product of public education, and that is indoctrination. And when I talked to um, Dana Thompson-Dorsey, who's an education policy expert at USF, she felt that it's really important that all voices be heard. Um, some, a lot of what we heard at the school board meetings was parents saying, you're not listening to me about masks or about different concerns that they had about curriculum. You're not listening to me. But we do need to listen to them. And what she pointed out was we need to listen to all voices. We need to make sure that we're not preventing anyone from having their voice heard. 
And the concern with a overtly politicized school board is that ideology then will filter into the classroom. And that's not what anybody wants in education. They want a well-rounded education for all students. Well, Kerry Sheridan is a host and covers education and health for WUSF. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matthew. And we've also been speaking with Stephen Walker. He covers education for the Sarasota Herald Tribune. Stephen, thank you as well. Thank you so much for having me. And you can hear more of that interview with WUSF's Kerry Sheridan and the Sarasota Herald Tribune's Stephen Walker on our website, wusfnews.org. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.